Good morning again. Today is an exciting day because we're leaping into our big uh, series on the Bible. We're going to go through and just preach the entire story of the Bible, which is going to be fun. So um, let's pray. Uh, oh, we know. Can you come forward, please? The evangelist, Erastus Awino, would you just pray for the service this morning? Yeah. Heavenly Father, we just want to say thank you that you are in our midst. And we appreciate every moment that you are in our midst because you are always there. Uh, Lord, I pray for Jason that you would um, just give him wisdom and understanding how to elaborate your word and open, us, uh, open up our spiritual ears and eyes to see and hear what you have in store for us. In Jesus' name, we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I love it when you pray. You love it when we know praise. And it's more than the accent, mind you. It doesn't hurt, I'll be honest. We are, um, I, I've talked a little bit about our plan here uh, with going through the scriptures, held up a couple of books that we're going to be using. I just, this is just a resource, but I want you to let you know the college group is using it, the, and the, the uh, youth are also using this. Um, but this is a resource that you can all grab too if you'd like to. You don't have to. In fact, we'll go ahead and post the approximations of scriptures we're going to be reading through every week. But what we, what we would love is for people to have read through the stories that we're going to be preaching on the next week. So then we could all sort of be on the same page and, and really walking through the Bible together. Um, this is one way to do it. And again, this is not uh, a full Bible, okay? So, so it is only a tool. So I'm not going to be preaching out of here. I'm just preaching based on the schedule that they have here. We're still preaching out of the, the full word here. Um, so we, we can post online the reading schedules and what those correspond to. So like, for instance, this morning, um, we're, we're starting this first one, which would have been uh, up through uh, about Genesis 8. Um, and uh, uh, we're going to go from there. So if you'd like to grab these, these are only five bucks. It's a great deal. Uh, it says teen edition, but there's nothing really teen-ish about it, except there's this funny little animation thing at the bottom, which I don't quite understand. But um, it's great. Um, there's, there's hardcover ones available online for, I think, like five bucks still. So um, they're very inexpensive, and it's going to be a really cool ride, I think. Um, so uh, let's, let's dive right in. I uh, love this quote by Robertson McQuilkin. I've shared it here before. The Bible, if it is God's word revealing his will, nothing could be of greater importance than understanding it. If the Bible was given to reveal truth and not to hide it, God must intend that we understand it. Now, isn't that rather an obvious statement? Yet some people come to the scripture expecting that they're not going to be able to get it because God's too, uh, you know, on another plane, which he totally is on another plane, which is why he gave us the Bible. Heard it said this way, the Bible is not an expression of God's transcendence. It's a communication to my limitedness. It's precisely what it is. Isn't that good? So, um, I think the thing that freaks people out about the Bible, I think they avoid reading it for the same reason people avoid reading a VCR repair manual. There's three reasons why people avoid a VCR repair manual. First is, what's a VCR? Yeah, I know. 
So I use this example all the time when I'm talking to college-age students with YWAM or something. I always do have somebody, what's a VCR? It's like, exactly. It's outdated, right? That's, the reason, that's one of the reasons people avoid reading the Bible, too. They think, oh, it's outdated, it's old, right? Uh, it's boring. Uh, VCR repair manuals, maybe you do like to curl up with a cup of cocoa on a rainy afternoon and, and read about the Emerson 4B100. I don't know. If that's your thing, congratulations. To me, it's dreadfully boring, and people think the same thing about the Scripture. The third is that it's confusing. I'll give you that one. The Bible can be incredibly confusing. Now, here's why it can be confusing. Let me just give you some examples. Why the confusion? Well, uh, first of all, there's 66 books written by dozens of authors writing over a time span of 1,500 years. That's, that's going past many different cultures, many different developments, uh, uh, um, all kinds of different regions. I mean, this is a, a pretty wide uh, Span this is coming from, written over a long time ago, in a long time ago, in a land far, far away. Okay, so not only was it written over a long time span, it's been a long time since it happened, and there's things about their cultures that we're going to have to break through if we're going to hope to understand anything. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, you'll know this if you've had any experience whatsoever in cross-cultural ministry, or just maybe you had a dear friend from another culture that sometimes looked at the way you did things and scratched his head and said, what? Why do you do that? Well, it's because culture is, is actually, can actually be a huge barrier to understanding. It really, it, it really is. So this becomes a huge problem when we're looking at the scriptures. Because not only is it a geographical cultural difference and a regional, it's also a, a time distance. So that cultural barrier can be very confusing. And finally, uh, oh, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It's all translated for us. And finally this, it's not in chronological order. Now some people assume that it is, because well you could say relative chronological order, right? Genesis is in the beginning, Revelation's in the end, you know, it sort of goes through. But you'll read through, for example, parts of the book of Jeremiah, and the very next chapter, after the story you just read, might happen 15 years earlier. You read the book of Kings, and you read the book of Kings, you're like, oh, there it is, I just read about the book of Kings. And then you go through in Chronicles, and you're reading a lot of the same stories, and then some different stories that happen in between. It's, it, can be, it can be a confounding situation to try to, where, what goes where? This is one of the reasons I, I appreciate this resource. It's just a tool, mind you, it's just a tool. Um, but I appreciate it because they've done their best to make the story in chronological order, which for me is extremely helpful. Because at least I'm understanding, well, why, why was this king doing that thing or, or whatever? It, it, it helps to bridge that chronological gap for us. So, we're going to be doing our best to go through and revealing the Bible, not as many different stories. We're not going to read the Bible like a fortune cookie here. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, this is kind of a cultural thing of like, let's get our cool verse that we love. And, and like, we're just going to take that snippet, and there you go. I just read the Bible. It's, well, well, yeah. It's not a collection of sayings, unless you're talking about like the book of Proverbs, which actually is a, a collection of sayings. Most of them are not connected. It just goes on to the next little saying, because that's what a proverb is. It's a wise saying. Most of the scripture is not like that. Most of the scripture is there, and it's in story form. And even you have the, the psalms that take place, and in many of the psalms you can actually take, because it, it says the exact circumstance that the psalm was written. So you can take, uh, uh, you know, Psalm 51, for example, and you know right where that goes in the story right where that goes in the midst of David's worst moment of his life, 
boom, this is what he prayed to God. So it really is all one big story. I want to get rid of this idea that there's lots of little ones and that they're not even connected. There are lots of little ones and they're all part of a big one. So that's our goal over these uh, next months is to, to see that. Does that make sense? No? Yes? Okay. I think it does make sense. All right. So I want to start... Um, with a video. Pastor Joshua showed a video last week, and to outdo him, I'm showing two videos this week. <laughs> this first one is by a group up in Portland uh, called The Bible Project, and um, this to me, I thought, well, why don't I just show this rather than taking 20 minutes to explain all this? So this is super cool. We'll probably use more of their videos in the future because uh, I love it. The first book in the Bible is a book you've probably heard of. It's called Genesis. Genesis comes from a Hebrew word. Uh, it's pronounced reshit, uh, and it just means beginning. Now, there's a lot of stories from the book of Genesis, and it's easy just to pull out a specific story and, and try to tell you what it might mean. But we think the best way to understand this book is to look at the book as a whole and show you how the whole thing is designed. The book is designed to fall into two main parts. You have uh, chapters 1 through 11, which is telling the story of God and the whole world. And then you have the second part, which is about God and Abraham's family, as chapters 12 through 50. And how the two of those parts relate, that's where you find the message of the book. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. The first part of Genesis begins with a creation story, where God creates everything. And how exactly that happens, of course, that's where all the debates come. But he takes a dark, watery, chaos and he turns it into a beautiful garden where humans can can flourish that sounds nice it does sound nice in fact seven different times god says of all that he's made that it's good and this is where we meet the first human characters in the bible adam and eve they're they're both individual characters but they're also representative adam is the hebrew word for humanity and eve is the hebrew word for life and God creates them in his image. In other words, humanity reflects or is meant to reflect the, the, the creativity, the goodness and character of the creator out into the world that he's made. And they're supposed to reproduce and make cultures and neighborhoods and art and gardens and, and everything else. But he gives them a, a moral choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And this is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. And he tells them, don't eat of the fruit of this tree or you will die. What's that all about? So up till now, God has been the one defining and providing what is good. And so God is the one with the knowledge of good and evil. But now this tree represents a choice. Will the humans trust God's definition of good and evil? Or are they going to seize the opportunity and define good and evil for themselves? And Adam and Eve eat the fruit. This is the core biblical explanation for that concept of sin, that desire to call the shots myself. It's the inward turn of the human heart to do what's good for me and my tribe, even if it's at the expense of you and, and your tribe. And the problem is humans are horrible at defining good and evil without God. And so now that humanity's made this choice, things get really, really, really bad. So Genesis 3 through 11 is like tracing this downward spiral of all, all humanity. So Adam and Eve, they can't trust each other. 
anymore. And so there's a little story about how they were naked and felt fine about it beforehand, but now they feel shameful because all of a sudden Adam's definition of good and evil might be different than Eve's, and so they hide from each other. Then there's another story of temptation. Cain is jealous of his brother Abel, and he gives in and kills him. There's a story right after Cain about a guy named Lamech, and all we know about Lamech is that he accumulates wives like property, and he sings songs about how he's a more violent, vengeful person than Cain ever was, and he's proud of it. Things get so bad with the human race that we see God decide to just wipe us out. Yeah, we typically think of the flood story as about God being angry, but it actually begins with God's sadness and grief about the state of his world. And so out of his passion to preserve the goodness of his world, he washes it clean with the flood. But there's a glimmer of hope. He, he chooses Noah and his whole family, and he saves them on this boat. Yeah, don't forget about the animals. Right, and the animals. So Noah <laughs> and his family are going to reboot all of humanity. I mean, he must be a pretty great guy. But this is the story most people don't know because it's kind of weird, is that Noah gets off the boat and he plants a vineyard and he gets totally plastered and then something sketchy happens in his tent with his son. It's a tragic story. So from here humanity grows again, but things are as bad as before. And the last story is the famous story of the Tower of Babel. And in this story you have all of the nations uniting together to use this new technology they have, the brick. And they want to make a name for themselves and build this big city with a huge tower that will reach up to the gods. But God knows that this city will be a nightmare. And so in his mercy, he scatters them. And all of these stories, they're underlining the same basic idea. When humans seize autonomy from God, when they define good and evil for themselves, it results in a world of tragedy and death. And this leaves you wondering, is there any hope for humanity? Yes, yeah, there is. It's the very next story that answers that question. It's the beginning of God's mission to rescue and restore his world. Isn't that cool? Very succinct and uh, um, very profound. So this is the, the beginning of, of uh, the story we're dealing with here. Now, uh, we're all so familiar with Genesis 1, probably, uh, or, or many of us. I don't want to read directly through it, but I want to show you this. If we're talking about the, whole, the story of Scripture, the story isn't really about us. We're part of it, but God is the protagonist of the story, okay? God's the hero. Now, he begins, Genesis 1 is almost a prologue, and it, it, it shows some really incredibly profound truths about who he is. For example, we see right away, he is eternal, the very first four words, in the beginning God, shows he's eternal, existing in the beginning. He has all power, power, creating ex nihilo, creating out of nothing, creating something out of nothing. That's, that's a profound, mind-numbing truth. He has all knowledge, guiding the creation, creating animals in their own kind to continue on and perpetuate the different species, all the different things in the creation story is telling us something profound about him. He has all knowledge. He is triune, as it says in, in verse 26, let us make man in our own image. And this one, he is vast. I want to show the second video here. Um, just, I'm just going to play it. 
Between 1921 and 1929, Mount Wilson Observatory was the site of some of the most important discoveries in the history of astronomy. Here, more than a mile above Los Angeles, Edwin Hubble used this telescope to revolutionize scientific understanding of the structure, size, and origin of the universe. Working tirelessly from his wicker chair, Hubble determined that our Milky Way galaxy, thought by many astronomers to constitute the entire universe, was actually just one of countless billions of galaxies in a vast cosmic sea. Hubble also demonstrated that these galaxies were receding from each other, a fact that strongly implied the universe had a definite beginning. For a better perspective of the cosmos Edwin Hubble unveiled, let us embark on an imaginary journey from the top of Mount Wilson to the farthest reaches of the known universe. Traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, how long would this journey take? Albert Einstein demonstrated that time would be dramatically altered for anyone traveling at such a speed. But for the sake of simplicity, we'll set aside this effect by measuring time with earthbound clocks. We depart Mount Wilson on January 1st. Hurtling through space, we quickly pass the orbit of Mars in just four minutes, 30 seconds. We continue on past Jupiter and the other gas giant planets, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And five hours and 30 minutes after leaving the Earth, we fly past Pluto and its companion moon. Our journey has taken us more than three and a half billion miles to the outer limits of our solar system. And back at Mount Wilson, it's still January 1st. We now take our first steps into interstellar space. Behind us, our neighboring planets and the sun quickly disappear from view. The void of space is broken only by the glimmer of stars so distant they do not yet appear to move, even though we continue to travel at the speed of light. A year passes, then two years, three, four years. Finally, on April 19th of the fifth year, we reach the Alpha Centauri system, the nearest stars to our sun. We have traveled nearly 25 trillion miles, yet our journey has barely begun. We are now 10 light years from the sun, far enough out in space that the stars within our galaxy appear to converge. 100 light years from the sun. Patterns of gas and dust from an arm of the Milky Way galaxy surround us. 1,000 light years. The galaxy's arms and central disk become more defined. Yet it is not until we've traveled at the speed of light for 100,000 years that the entire spiral shape of the Milky Way is recognizable. From here on, each point of light we see is no longer an individual star, but an entire galaxy composed of billions of stars. 
five million years after beginning our journey, the Milky Way is recognized as part of a cluster of at least 30 galaxies known as the local group. Bound together by gravity, the galaxies that comprise the local group span a region of space more than three million light years across. Fifty million light years out, we encounter the large Virgo cluster containing more than 2,000 galaxies. And so it goes as we continue to travel deeper into the cosmos. We pass cluster after galactic cluster, each a building block of a far greater framework. A billion years pass. Five billion. Ten billion. Finally, after 14 billion years, we are able to discern the large-scale structure of the entire universe. At least 100 billion galaxies stretch in thread-like chains across the cosmos, forming a tapestry of unimaginable dimensions. feel small. <laughs> it says in Genesis, he set the stars in the sky. One translation says he hung the stars. Yeah. He's vast. Vast, 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 big. He's got the whole world. How is it this is all stuff you get in the first chapter, by the way. This is in the prologue telling you this is the kind of protagonist we're dealing with. He has unlimited power, and he's unlimited in size. Now, maybe I'm oversimplifying the doctrine of omnipresence, but when you're that big, you're everywhere. That's why David, you know, Psalm 139, is like, where can I go from your presence? I could swim to the deepest ocean. Well, you're already there. I could climb the highest mountain. You're there, too. I, I, you're just, you're everywhere. Yeah, he's vast. This is who we're dealing with now. This is where, to me, it gets totally shocking of what we see next. Now, again, try to pull away from, from what you already know about Scripture and just think of this as, uh, uh, just for now, just think of this as a story maybe that you've never heard before. You've just heard, this is the main character, and he's that. He's, he's unbelievable big. He's, he's, he's un, uh, uh, um, he's, he can't be contained in any way. Um, and uh, so he... Uh, he says here, um, no, come on, next slide, next slide. Um, we have something like this happen, okay? Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Now, is that a little funny to any of you? Here's what's funny to me. You've got this God. He already knows the way they're designed. He already knows what they're called. And suddenly, he goes, huh, you. Sits on his knee. 
what do you want them to be called? Why would it matter? Wait, why would I? I'm not qualified. It doesn't matter. Go ahead. And it's the first example that I see of him actually giving away some of that control that he has. You see, he could say, son, you don't have any right to call anything anything except what I say anything should be called. But he doesn't do that. So he's sitting and waiting, and, and maybe Adam's going, uh, I don't know what to do. And God says, well, we can't just sit around and wait for sharks to rain down on us. Go ahead and tell us what you want to do. What are we going to call this thing? And so he says whatever it is. Now, that's a little silly example, okay? And I don't think God really said that, by the way. He might have. Who knows? Who knows? Silly example. But you've got this then. Bigger example. He tells Adam and Eve, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Do you notice something funny here? Then why did you put it in the garden? You see, if he didn't want them to eat of the knowledge of good and evil, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he could have just said, I will not allow you to do that. You shall try, and you shall feel the invisible force field that I put there. You see what I'm saying? He did not control the situation. He told them what they ought to do, but he did not make them obey. But this is the God who could make them do anything because he just juggles galaxies in his fingers. That's how big he is. He speaks when nothing is there and then something is there. He has unimaginable power and intelligence, and here he is going, I'm going to let you make a choice. Is that profound or what? He's giving away some of his control. Now think about this. The next time something happens to somebody and they say, why did you do that to me, God? You need to stop and think, hold on. Remember, God gave away some of his control. We cannot always make the assumption that God did something when something happens. He let human beings go and make decisions. Now, of course, we could go on and on about this. There's been millions of pages with <laughs> Uh, about this very topic of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and how those things work together. I don't want to make a huge point of that particular issue today because it's always going to come up. But the bigger point to me this morning is simply this. God gave away some of his power, and he didn't have to. And as a result of man having power and misusing power, we have brokenness in the world. We have brokenness in our lives. We all know those things. But here's something that ought to really make us think. All of that, all of this, I just want to bring up as to, for, for this one point, okay? Yes, God many times uh, has given away power. In fact, oh, here, let me give one more example before I get there. Forgot about this one. Think about this. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain, you must master it. Cain, I will not master it for you. This is something you need to do. I'll be with you, but this is something you need to do. Do you see this? You have the authority. You have power in your hands. And of course, Cain misused that to hurt his brother. 
We understand our choices, our free will, we can damage our neighbor and ourselves with it, but we very, very rarely think about this. And I want it, since we're talking about God as the protagonist, I want to zero in on this this morning. We very rarely think about this, and here it comes in chapter 6. The Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. You see, by giving us part of his control, he was not only risking hurt on earth for the sake of relationship, he was risking hurt for himself in his own heart. Now, this almost doesn't even make sense because this is the God of unimaginable power. 14 billion light years, and we don't even really know if that's the end where you can ascertain the large-scale structure of the universe. That's just where we stop being able to see. He's a God that's that big and that's that powerful, and yet he grieves because of things that we do. Do you see how weird this is? This causes all kinds of theological headaches, and some of them, some theologians just can't go there. Many theologians can't go there. They're, you know what? We can't actually make him grieve. That just doesn't make sense. And he wouldn't be God if we could affect him that way. And I would say, time out. This is all the way through Scripture. This is all the way through Scripture that you see a God who is mighty in unimaginable ways and yet, yet so vulnerable that he can actually be emotionally wounded by his children. Do you see why this is crazy? But this is the picture we get of him here. He is grieved. And if it just came up this one time, I might be able to explain it away, but it doesn't. It doesn't at all. We see him all the way through Scripture. We, we see, for example, um, we see the example of uh, Jesus, or the, of God in the Old Testament saying, oh, Israel, you've run away from me like a woman dealing treacherously with her husband. You've run away to other lovers. He uses the example uh, of, of adultery over and over again, and oftentimes he uses the example of a father whose children have rejected him and run away from him. Jeremiah gave these words and he wept because he identified with the heart of the father who was also weeping. For the brokenness of my people, he says, I am broken. We see Jesus, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We see him weeping in agony in the garden. Now, was it because of what was about to happen to him physically? Oh, certainly that was involved. But this was emotional strain based on hurt and woundedness. He's just one of his best friends was just betraying him right there. And you know, I have a feeling that his eyes were even wider in that scenario than, than just on Judas. I think it was on all the hurt that humanity had brought in general. He wept. He wept when he saw his own friend Mary weeping, saying, where were you, Jesus? Where were you? He wept. He was moved to compassion. Now, you might say, well, that was just Jesus' human side. Well, the New Testament also talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. That's not talking about the worship leader played the wrong song. Can't stand that kind of stuff. That's not what it's talking about. Can you, can, can you make the Holy Spirit grieve? Apparently you can. You guys, it's a maddening proposal to think that it almost sounds blasphemous but you can affect God in that way. You have the ability to move him. Did you know that? 
You have the ability to move him. Does that mean that you're super powerful? No, it means that he gave you that ability. Could he have squared himself off? Could he have quarantined himself in the big God bubble where now, now nothing can touch me? Yes, he could have done that, but he didn't. He chose to create a world where you and I had some control that he could have held, but he decided not to. I think he thought it was more valuable to live with us, come what may, even if it hurt, than to be separated from us. Paul, worship team, can you guys come back up? This, this word that he was sorry that he was made man, or that he made man, has a, a couple of different implications. One is that he literally wished that he hadn't made man. Now, make of that what you will. That's another one theologians pull their hair out. What do you mean? Well, there's another translation that means this. It, it, this, it was sorrow to the point of panting that he had such grief in his heart, it was like he was trying to take a breath and couldn't take a breath because he was so moved. It's that picture. That's the, that is the despair that he felt over the sin of mankind. I think it sounds weird because we've bought in too much to what the culture says about God. We've bought in a little bit to the whole, even the whole George Lucas, you know, the, the force kind of thing. Like, it's like God is just, he's just this presence or this energy that sometimes comes when we, when we play the right smoking music or when we pray the right prayers or something, you know. He's, he shows up and all his presence is here and like, well, that, that's, that. God isn't a force. He's a person. He's an infinite person. And yes, his presence is thick and strong and, and wild and all kinds of beautiful things about that, but he is first and foremost a father who's opened himself up to us. That's who he reveals himself to be. Here's why I think this is so crucial, guys. This is why I wanted to start this whole journey with this idea. Because we live in a grace culture. And that's a good thing. We've chosen to be a house that always looks to extend grace because we think he extends grace. We want to be quick to turning when we recognize that we've blown up, that we can come to him and fall on our faces and say, please forgive me, and we believe that he will. But sometimes, guys, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be honest with you, sometimes I feel like we get up too quickly after we fall on our faces. Sometimes I, for, I think we forget, oh, wait a minute, this isn't just me that's involved here. It's not just that I blew it, it's that I actually hurt you, that my sin actually did something to your heart. I want to be a grace culture. I want to maintain being a grace culture. But I will not treat him with that kind of levity. And here's the thing, I have. Sometimes when I've blown it, I start thinking, oh man, I really blew it. Man, I, I really blew it. I got to get back on so that I can feel better about myself. And that becomes more my attitude. Lord, please forgive me. And I want that guilt to go away. Please push that guilt out. And the entire time I leave him out of the process except he's the giant grace vending machine or something. He's not that. He's a person. And when we sin against him, it wounds him. This is the biggest reason why we ought not to sin against him. Because he's a beautiful father. He's a good, good father. I heard 
preacher say one time, a man named Kip Gaines, who gave this example. He, he, he sought the Lord. And with anything like this, I always say, take it with a grain of salt, because it's what somebody else said the Lord said to them. But this rang true to me, guys. He asked the Lord, what breaks your heart more than anything? He said, murder. He goes through this big list. What breaks your heart more than anything? And he said he felt like the Lord said this. It's when I'm left out. It's when I'm left out. And this is what Jesus said when he walked into Jerusalem. He went up on the mountain, and he wept. He wept over the city. And here's what he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. As we were singing the song, Draw Near to Me this morning, I was thinking, he says, I've made a place for you here. Come on, come on. I was thinking, this is Jesus saying, I called you, come on. I wanted to gather you to myself. Come on, come on. All things are possible here. Come on, but you were not willing. And that's why he wept. It's really so simple. He's provided a place for us. Will we draw near to him? Because when we resist, that's what breaks his heart. I want to sing this song. This is a beautiful worship song, and it's the heart of God singing to us. And I want us to sing this together, or you can just sit quietly and let the words wash over you. But hear it as the heart of God crying out for us. And let's, if it's appropriate, repent to the Lord for forgetting his heart in the process.